Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew 26, verse 6. I'm actually going to read that and refer to that directly at the end of my message. So you have plenty of time to turn there. If you don't know the difference between Matthew, Revelation, and Genesis, you've got about 25 minutes to find it. We're still in our series called What Three Words? And to illustrate the content and the theme of my message today, I have a prop for you. And the prop is this, a microphone. And the story for me goes that a couple of weeks ago at the West Congregation, our radio mic or wireless mic, whatever your vernacular, was resting on a music stand, just like this, and it's towards the front of the church, as they tend to be, and we hadn't begun the meeting, and I'm wandering around, I'm talking to people, conversing, making some, what I think, funny jokes, imparting the kingdom of God, like the good leader that I am, and then out the corner of my eye, I notice something. There are two children under the age of five playing around in close vicinity to the music stand. And so there's something triggered inside of me. Kids, music stand, expensive microphone. I just know we're expecting trouble. But I play it cool, I play it calm, I continue my conversations, I'm just talking away, but just subtly, out of that corner of my eye, trying to keep an eye on that music stand, praying just quietly in my spirit, Lord, In your sovereign will, do not let that mic stand get knocked. But something must have happened to hinder my prayers. Some demon must have come in the room and snatched it out of the air and said, Not today, Pastor. Something's going to happen to test you. And what happened was my son, my youngest son, Tobias, who was one of those two little miscreants hanging around the music stand, playing with his friend, he thought innocently knocks the music stand and on the floor goes the 250 pound wireless microphone and in my mind I'm thinking Lucas is on sabbatical I'm going to have to explain to him that my child has broken this wireless microphone and what's our insurance policy again and what was our contingency for all these things are running through my head and so I pause my conversation, I walk across to where the scene of the accident is, I pick up the microphone, and then a guy called Barry, who is in our church and understands the values of, value of microphones, he also comes over slightly ashen-looking and pale. And he takes the microphone from me, he looks at it, he inspects it, wanting to see if there's any dents on it, something that's going to maybe just prepare us for the worst. And then he presses the button... And then we wait as he lifts it to his mouth. And in the same kind of whispering voice, he probably whispers sweet nothings to his wife. He goes, hello. And it worked. It was fine. And I didn't get the sack. And I didn't have to shout at my children. I just said, boys, 
please don't play around the front of church again. And I made them sit down. And I put it in a safer place. And there was a note to myself at that point, never leave expensive equipment. Just stood around unattended at the front of church. But what's my message from this? My message from this is simply this. In life, sometimes things get broken. Sometimes things get damaged. But there are things more important and more valuable than things, and that's people. And sometimes in life, people get broken, and people get damaged. And there are usually three reasons for that. The first reason is simply this, that in life, we live in a world where we're not guaranteed permanent peace and safety. It can be a dangerous and painful place at times. So just the fact that we live in a fallen world where we're not isolated and protected from all harm and adversity means that sometimes bad things can happen through a chain of events or through circumstances. The second reason sometimes damage and pain happens to people is because someone makes a bad decision who you can't control. And you experience the consequences of their bad decision. And God allows us to reap the consequences of other people's mistakes. In God's sovereign will and plan, he has knitted things together in such a way that at times there are consequences to actions that were not instigated by us. And we feel like the innocent party in this drama that unfolds that we have had no part in other than to experience the pain of somebody else's decision-making. And so that's the second thing. But there is the third thing that is often the cause of damage and pain, and that's the mistakes of the decisions that we make for ourselves. The unwise or the foolish choices that we make that can lead us to a consequence where we experience pain as a result of our bad decision-making. So I'm just going to talk around this subject a little bit, and then I get to point four out of five, and I talk more seriously about that part of it, that part where we're responsible for bad decisions. But let me just offer to you a few things that the Bible says about how we can understand this topic of where brokenness and pain happens, and what the Bible offers to us as some kind of solution, I guess, but also some wisdom about how to process those kind of moments or even, in fact, seasons in our lives. I'm going to place that somewhere safe. I'm just thinking it would be a real irony if I knock that over halfway through. Okay, the first point I would offer to you is that, according to Scripture, it's okay at times to be sad. Sadness is not something that is evil. Sadness is not something that is inherently bad. It may be something that we experience as the result of something bad, but in itself it's not bad. When we read through the Bible, there are many stories where we witness the sadness of men and of women of God. There is a guy who most of us will know called King David. He often records some of his sadness in songs. We sing them maybe partly in the lyrics of the choruses that we use today. But he would put his melancholy to music. There was a guy called Elijah, a really, I guess, pretty courageous prophet. But there were times of real deep sadness and challenge in his own 
mental life to a point where he said at one point he didn't want to be alive. There's a guy called Jeremiah, another prophet, who was someone who stood up courageously to confront the injustice in his nation and speak on behalf of God to the powers of the land. And he ended up weeping for the state of the people that he loved so dearly and the nation that he felt God wanted to restore, but were deliberately and intentionally over time slipping away from him. It caused a deep sadness in him. There was a lady called Hannah who wept because she couldn't have children. There was a lady called Leah, who was the sister of a lady called Rachel, who married Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And she had been betrothed and married. Well, she didn't know she was going to be betrothed, but she married Jacob. And Jacob was upset because he thought he was going to marry her sister, Rachel. And he'd worked for seven years to marry Rachel. And then on the wedding night... The father swapped them over, and he finds out the next morning that he'd married her sister. And then he has to work a whole bunch of years more to marry the girl that he wanted to marry originally. Imagine how that would affect your self-esteem if you were Leah, thinking, I'm in this relationship with this guy, and he worked for all of these years not to be married to me, but to be married to my sister. And when I was finally the prize on his wedding night, he was so miffed the next morning, he went to my father, and then he told him what a, what a mess he'd made of it. But then my father told him he's got to work a bunch more years. What's that going to do to your self-esteem? And it records in the Scripture, when you read that story in Genesis, that because God saw her misery, he opened her womb to be able to conceive children. It recognizes that there was a misery in her life, and God wasn't indifferent to that misery. He didn't take it away, but he made himself present in that moment and began a series of events as a solution through that misery. So the Bible recognizes there are going to be times when we're going to be sad, we're going to be upset, we may cry, there may be even what we would describe as some sort of depression as a consequence of that. But one of my experiences as a sort of in a therapy type context within, within the church is that it can actually have a real benefit if at times you allow yourself to cry. Imagine a pot of water boiling on top of an oven hob and you have a lid on top of the oven hob and the heat is heating up the water and you start to sense that the water is bubbling inside the pan but you hold the lid on top. Then after a while, if the lid stays on the pan, but the heat continues to go into the bottom of the pan and the water's there, what happens is there is a pressure that's building inside of the pan. And so you've got two choices. You can either try and use all of your force to try and keep the lid on top of the pan to stop any of the steam or the moisture escaping, and then it's your fight against the pressure that's inside that pan. Or you can take the pan lid off and allow some of that steam and that pressure to escape. And suddenly then, what's in the pan is useful to you. Sometimes in our lives, it's like that when we're, we're feeling some sort of real deep emotional angst or pressure on the inside. It's like God has given us tears as a safety valve to be released to allow us to process the pressure that we feel building up in us. And in fact, there are some other benefits to us 
as well. Tears and sadness can give us an opportunity to pause and to regain some strength. When you're sad, you tend to slow down. You tend to retreat a bit. And actually, that can be very constructive. It also helps others to know that we need some help. It's like a flag that says, hey, will somebody come and maybe come around me right now? It's a, often quite a, a, a public thing, if not maybe to the masses, but maybe to the few. It also reminds us of life's meaning. When we're sad, we're mourning the loss of something or regretting something happening. And that's a reminder to us of what is valuable and what is important in life. It also leads us to be able to adapt. Maybe we use that time in mourning and tears for a, a kind of a reflection to think, what went wrong? What can I do differently as a result of this? And it can also facilitate a deeper connection with others. When we're in a place of sadness, a place of tears, going through a difficult moment, and somebody connects with us in that moment, there is a deeper bond than when they connect to us through the superficiality of day-to-day life. When you have met with or sat with and connected with someone at a point of sadness and tears, there is a deeper bond that happens than those times when you connect otherwise. And it can also make us kinder individuals. So it's as if God has placed within us this sadness as a way for us to more effectively process the pressure and the discomfort of life. So we have to accept that sometimes it's necessary. The other thing we have to accept is that sometimes we're going to be left with a sense of mystery. You know, in our lives, we don't like things that don't make sense. We like to feel that we can find some sort of answer or solution to a problem that's going on. In my life right now, the biggest problem for me is that I have a leak in my kitchen roof. I've had that leak in my kitchen roof for two weeks. I've had two roofing companies come out to my house, and none of them can find the reason for that leak. I don't want to live with the mystery. I want to, I want, I want to live with the solution. Because the mystery is going to cost me money. Because every roofer that comes in, they have a different price than the one before about what the solution is going to need to be. So when we see a problem, we want a solution. But sometimes in life, as even as Christians who are following God, who is just and who is love, we don't always get the answers that we want from him or from life. There's this guy in the Bible called Job, and he has this really interesting and fascinating story. In the first chapter of Job, the person writing about his life sets him up as this perfect ideal of the moral human being. He's not described as an Israelite. He's not set in a context, a historical context, that we can immediately discern or decide upon. He's just living his life in a way that we would say it was exemplary. He's always doing the right thing, not just for himself, but his family. And there's the correlation of a blessing that comes along with that righteousness. And then God allows this person who kind of comes into his team meeting called the Satan, who is the accuser, and says, this guy, Job, who's got all of this good stuff going on in his life, let's see what would happen to him if you took all of that good stuff away. Let's see if he would really love you and serve you. So God, kind of strangely to those who are reading, goes, yeah, okay, let's let that happen. And then he has all of the stuff that he thought would be associated with anybody who lived a moral and upright life 
taken away from him. And then he has to go through this journey of questioning to determine why that was happening. Because you would, wouldn't you? If you were serving God and doing the right thing, offering your sacrifices as God had asked you to do, doing the things you felt were prescribed for you, doing the things that you would say were moral and ethical, and then suddenly all the things associated with that were stripped away from you, you'd be thinking, what did I do wrong? And this is the line that his friends then have for him. He has these three friends that sit down with him and say, Job, you know what? This God who you claim to serve, he is just. And if he is just and you're experiencing this, then the problem must be with you. You must have done something wrong to deserve this. Job's not happy with this and he's defending himself and kind of justifying himself to them. And then another friend comes along and he says, well, maybe, Job, maybe this isn't just about your moral condition or something that you don't know about. Maybe, just maybe, this is God trying to teach you a lesson or to try and stop you doing something bad in the future. Maybe this is for the shaping of your character. And so Job is trying to figure out how he could serve a God of love and a God of justice and do the things that this God says to do and still experience a bad life. And then at the end of the book, God steps into the picture and Job gets to put his questions to God. And you get this sense from Job, he's kind of saying to God, God, if I was you, I would run the universe different to this. This doesn't make sense to me. Good people, just people, Don't let bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. How could you kind of claim to be who you are if I'm experiencing this? What is wrong? And the interesting thing about the book of Job is that God never finally answers really his question. He's kind of left with this mystery. God says to Job, who do you think you are talking to me? Have a bit of humility. Maybe there's a lot going on, Job, that you don't really know about. You're just seeing your life from the perspective of your own experience. But maybe from the heavenly perspective, there's a lot more to this running this world than you understand. How about you leave the running of the universe to me and you just humble yourself and be thankful for what I do give you and now let's get you back on track. And then God restores the circumstances of Job and he continues with his life. But the question isn't answered. He has to live with that question surrendered to God and to leave it to him. And for many of us, we may come into moments in our lives where we have to be prepared to surrender the mystery back to God. To say, God, you do your thing, you run the universe. What I will do is whether I am in plenty or with lack, whether I'm on the mountaintop or whether I'm in the valley, whether people are with me or whether people have left me, whether I'm on an up, whether I'm on a down, whether life feels inside out or upside down or the right side up and things are moving well, my job is to humbly serve the living God. And I am prepared to trust and obey and to leave my questions with you. So we have to be prepared at times to live with mystery. 
The other thing I would say to, is this, to us is that be prepared as well to go on a journey with yourself through trouble situations and with others. In this desire to see things concluded and wrapped up nicely and simple answers to problems, we can sometimes be a bit trite and cliched in our pastoral care of others. We want to give people advice rather than sit with them and help them to understand what's going on in their life. Quite often, when someone's going through a problem, our answer is, is well, when I face a similar situation, I did this. Or if I was in your shoes, I would do that. Now, there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with that. But what I do think we have to be prepared to do is to go on a journey with people sometimes to allow them just to process what that mess and confusion is telling them about themselves inside. Otherwise, we become like Job's friends who just want to have a simple solution to what might be a great mystery. And we want to bring quick solutions to God's problems. Now, at times, of course, there can be a need for practical and wise counsel, of course. But the Bible also tells us in Romans um, that we should uh, weep with those who weep and we should mourn with those who mourn. I did some research about the mourning process in ancient Israel. The guideline was this. For a friend or family member, often a parent, the guideline was around seven days of mourning. But for a king or a noble person, there would often be a period of 30 days of mourning. Just to allow people to reset and to recalibrate themselves after the shift and the change of the season that they've just gone through. There's also a reference in Deuteronomy 31 of when Israelites go into battle and sometimes there are women and children who are... I guess the spoils of war in that respect, or they're just people who were taken captive after that battle, that they were to allow them to a, a, a month just to get their head around what had just gone on before they kind of took them into their own household and kind of married them into the Israelite community. It's the Bible recognizing that there are times to give it time that sometimes complex and mysterious circumstances can't be unraveled over a coffee. You might begin there and you may come to a point at the end of a series of coffees with somebody where you, you can rest on what you need to do next with a real sense of clarity and certainty. But at times we need to be prepared to go on a journey with people and not to hurry ourselves to a conclusion either. In the mystery and the complexity and the mess and muddle of life, Sometimes we've just got to go on a journey and allow God to work something in our heart and our mind rather than trying to hurry ourselves always to a conclusion to get things over quick. The scriptures, I believe, recognize that times we have to go on a journey. Now here's where we get to the Bible passages I said earlier as we come out of this next point. So don't just hurry to it just yet. There are times when the mess in the model isn't a mystery. When the mess in the model isn't just circumstances and the mess in the model isn't the consequences of somebody else's foolish decisions. 
Sometimes the mess and the muddle and the fragmentation that we experience in life, this kind of trauma in the seat of our guts, comes as a consequence of the dumb things that we do. Not only does God allow us to reap the consequences of others' mistakes, He allows others to reap the consequences of our mistakes. And that's a real sobering thing. And in the Gospels, we have this guy called Judas, who many of us know and recognize was the guy who betrayed Jesus. He was the one that made the greatest mistake of choosing to betray the Son of God into the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans in order for Jesus to be set up to be crucified. There were others in Jesus' circle who made mistakes. Peter, we read about, he's going to make some mistakes as well by a fireside at night when he's by himself in front of the accusations of a young girl. He's going to deny Jesus three times. But Judas was on a whole other level. He is going to betray Jesus to death. His mistakes, his betrayal, and upon his own head. And then the Bible sets up this interesting contrast when we read through the story to the conclusion of Judas's life that he is so overwhelmed with the guilt and the responsibility of what he did that he hangs himself on a tree. He feels so overwhelmed by the stupidity and the magnitude of what he did, he felt he had no other option than to take his own life. And the symmetry to another story is this, that while Judas is hanging on a tree of his own making, Jesus is hanging on a tree for the mistakes of the world. Yes, we know that Jesus died on a cross, but Paul in Galatians 3.13, I'm going to read it in a minute, and also three times in the book of Acts, it's described that Jesus died on a tree. And the reason it references the cross as a tree is because in Deuteronomy 31, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus is taking the curse of humanity, taking the curse of every stupid decision that everyone from the beginning of time to the end of time will make were resting upon him. Every bad thing others did to you and every bad thing that you did to others. Every reason for every bad stuff that had ever happened was resting on Jesus. Every curse of every problem was upon him. It says this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. What's the point that I'm making from that? The point I'm making is this. When you or I or anyone makes a mistake that they feel overwhelmed by guilt because of, they should never feel the despair that they have to suffer the consequences of their own mistakes when Jesus suffered the consequences of the mistakes for them. There is no sin since the beginning of time to the end of time that Jesus didn't die for. Judas is hanging on a tree because he feels he has no other option and Jesus is about to die on a tree because he's there to take away the sins of humanity. And we don't need to 
swallow our guilt until it consumes us to the point of despair when we can look to Jesus who died the death that we deserved, who paid the price that should have been ours, who carried the cost that should have been ours but we couldn't afford. Jesus paid it all. It either means what we say it means or it means nothing at all. And sometimes as Christians, we live in this divided world where we confess that Jesus has died for all of our sins, but in our day-to-day life, we're still consumed by the guilt of our own stupidity. Feeling like we've got nothing else to do but suffer under the emotional torment of the mistakes that we made. Because our conscience is over and over and over again telling us that you did wrong, you should have done it better, you could have done it another way. But we don't want to be like Judas who feels like we need to hang on the consequences of our own mistakes when we can look to Jesus on Calvary who who died for the consequences of everything we'll ever do. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So here's the final passage. Matthew 26. Here's a lady in this story who looked to Jesus for the solutions and the forgiveness for her mistakes. I'm going to read it out to us. Matthew 26, 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you're always going to have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let me just emphasize that last couple of words, in memory of her. Why is the memory of her important to this story? It's not because Jesus wanted to be in some sort of hall of fame for Christians as such, but What she would have been remembered for otherwise would have been a woman who was a prostitute and a sinner. When we reconstruct who this woman was from the gospel narrative, we can read around and find out actually, although she's not named in Matthew here, this is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had her money to do this because she had been a prostitute for many years. That's how she afforded to do what she did. And Jesus was saying, as she has now brought the the stuff that she did wrong and brought it to me, I can now create a different ending to her story. She would have been remembered for all the bad stuff, but now she's brought it to me. I'm going to make sure for the next 2,000 years at least, she's going to be remembered for this. She's going to be remembered as someone who brought her mistakes to the feet of Jesus and, he, and saw him turn it around and make sure that her memory was not one of misery, but it was one of celebration. God can write the end of our stories different if we are just to bring our mistakes to him. 
If we feel that we have to hang on the trees of our mistakes, that's where our story will end. But if we bring the consequences of our mistakes to the feet of Jesus and invite his grace in, he can write the end of our story in a way we never thought possible. She should never have had that ending. She should have been remembered for all time as a woman who caused problems for Israel because of the ways that she was living. And Jesus said, that's not how it's going to end. It ends with what grace tells her she deserves, not what her actions said she should get. And that grace is for you, that grace is for me, that grace is for us. As we leave here today, grace writes the end of our story to give us an ending that we don't deserve. Mercy and grace can transform the hardest heart and the blackest life and make them shine as bright as the sun because that's what God loves to do. He loves to turn a story around and say, look how bad you were, but in my hands, look how good you can become. God's grace and his mercy is enough. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what people have been going through this week, this month, this year, this season. But I do know that all of us face bumps in the road. Curveballs that come our way. Alleyways that we seem to go down and find no way out of. Dark places, valley experiences. Stuff that we're not quite sure about why it happened the way that it did. Stuff that maybe we feel that we didn't deserve because we thought we did everything right. Therefore, how could it go so wrong? Father, I just pray that whatever season people find themselves in this room this evening, that you would turn the light on to your grace and your mercy, that there will be no place for despair because we know that the cross of Jesus has paid the penalty for whatever we're going through. Whether that's the mistakes of others, the mistakes of ourselves, or just simply the fact we live in a complicated and problematic and dangerous world. God, we look to Jesus because he is enough. He has made the way through. And where there is brokenness, he can turn it into rejoicing. Where there is misery, he can bring it into gladness. Where there is sadness, he can turn it into celebration. As long as we look to Jesus, we trust his grace. He might not take every bit of the pain away, but you can take us through anything that we face and bring something beautiful out the other side. I pray that we will know afresh, God, that you love us and that just because we go through bad stuff doesn't mean you have stopped loving us. And you would help all of us, God, to finish our, our race according to your grace, not according to our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.